slide. I'm going to basically talk you through the, the notes that I've given you. Um, the notes that I've given you are the, are the kind of lighter side. I've also done some extensive notes that cover the same material, but in greater depth, and also do something that these notes don't do. What we're not going to do tonight is work through verse by verse, but in the longer notes, I've done that uh, as part of the, um, the, the preparation. So you can take it away, and then you could read Hosea for yourself with a, just a little bit of commentary. That's not in these notes, but that will be in the other notes, which Neil will send to you um, tomorrow, I guess. So, so first question really is, what do you know about Hosea? So rather than me telling you what I know, let's find out what you know. Let's see if we can get 10 facts about Hosea. Okay, shouting out. Anybody? Sorry? Shout out. A book in the Old Testament. Good, excellent, excellent. Anything else? Not many people read it, okay. Hands up who fall into that category, okay. Anything else? Yeah, he was told by God to go and marry a woman who was either a prostitute when he married her or became one later, which is kind of slightly mind-blowing, but there we go. That's three facts. Anything else? Yeah, he was a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, now, if you don't quite grasp what that means, I'll explain that as we go through. But at the time, the, the people of God, the Jewish people, are in two parts, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. He comes from Israel. He ministers in Israel. Just recently, Neil and others may have been preaching through the book of Amos, and Amos is a contemporary of Hosea. And Amos also preached in the north, in Israel, but he came from Judah. So that was slightly different. Okay, so we're doing well. Any more facts? Shout them out, otherwise we'll be here till midnight. Okay, that's great. One, okay, one of the phrases, my people perish through lack of knowledge. The, the problem is they just don't know me. If you knew God, things would be different, but you don't know me, says the Lord. So, so that's a key thing. That's one of the underlying problems amongst God's people at that time. Okay, five down, five to go. You're doing really well. It's about Jesus. Well, yeah, that's good. That's good because it's everything's about Jesus. That's brilliant. That is, that's a really significant point. Every book in the Bible is about Jesus. And one of the keys is unlocking every book is how does it tell us about Jesus? And hopefully by the end, we'll see some of the ways in which this book tells us about Jesus. Good. Anything else? It's a love story. Yeah, if you like love stories, this is a love story. I mean, that you can see that from there, can't you? Okay, anything else? It was a very difficult love story. It wasn't the kind of Mills and Boone um, or, 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 you know, I, I don't know about rom-coms. I've never seen one in my life, but you know, you know what I mean. Sort of, you know, it was kind of like uh, it was like um, some war story, actually. Okay, good. Two more to go. Quite a few of the verses are quoted in the New Testament. Quite a few, and it's quite interesting that you get all sorts of echoes. And and if you read Hosea for the first time, you think, "Wow, well, I've seen that before. Where where does that come from?" And it's often you, you, you know it from the New Testament rather than from the book of Hosea. One more fact. He was faithful, okay? It couldn't have been easy. It doesn't talk a lot about being persecuted. If you remember, Amos was terribly persecuted. It doesn't say that about 
Hosea, but it must have been a tough message to deliver. It must have been an incredibly tough life to live. Okay, God put Hosea through the most painful circumstances so that Hosea could minister into his situation. It's in a sense, it's almost as if God opens his heart to Hosea and Hosea understands because he's been or God has been where he has in some ways. Let me um, I, I'll say something about books at the end, but I think if you want to really follow this through, the best book, I think, at the moment available is this one. It's called Focus on the Bible, Hosea, The Passion of God by Tim Chester. Okay, and let me read you where he says right at the beginning. This is what he says right at the beginning. In the message of Hosea, we see the passion of God. We see the jealousy of God, the commitment of God, the heartbreak of God, the enthusiasm of God, the love of God. People often talk about what they feel about God. Hosea tells us what God feels about us. God can't be surprised. God can't be disappointed. God can't be thwarted. But in the book of Hosea, it appears that he can be heartbroken. He can see his people and it moves his heart. And there's a huge theological debate about that, which we won't go into. And, and you can ask Neil about that afterwards. But apart from that, you know, this is, this is, this is God speaking from his heart to his people. Okay, next slide, please. What we're going to do tonight, I hope... Um, and we'll be struggling a little bit for time, so we may at some point jump on to something else. But what we're going to try and do tonight are, are three things. First of all, a general introduction to the book with some basic questions. Then we'll look at the theology or the teaching of Hosea, and then we'll ask that question, which is a really important question, what does it tell us about Jesus? What's not there is going through verse by verse, and as I say in the notes that you'll get tomorrow, there's, there's, it's, not, I mean, it's not in any detail, but it'll help you to read it for yourself. Next slide, please. So whenever you come to any book in the Bible, okay any book whatever it is the questions you want to ask are these kind of questions who wrote it when did he write it how how is it getting its message across what does it consist of what's the structure of the book and why was it written okay so we're going to have a go at answering those questions and they're in your notes and you'll follow it through next one please so who wrote it and the answer is next slide Hosea. Hosea is one of the minor prophets. If you've got your Bible there, incidentally, it'd be good to turn up Hosea. I think it's, if these Bibles are the same as mine, it's page 900. But if you turn to that, but you also turn back to the, to the list of the books at the front of the Bible, you know, which tells you where to find the different books. Um, it, th th those books of the Old Testament, 39 books, fall into the law, which is... Um, from Genesis through to Deuteronomy, then the history books from Joshua through to Esther, then the poetry books, and then the prophets. So Isaiah all the way through to Malachi, 17 books are the prophets. And the first five are known as the major prophets. And then the next 12 books, beginning with Hosea, are the minor prophets. Now, that doesn't mean that they're not important. It just means that they're considerably shorter than the major prophets. At the head of the minor prophets is the book of Hosea. And it's, it's not the longest, but it's almost the longest of the, of the minor prophets. And it is also the one that, that, as far as the Jews were concerned, took them to the very heart of their faith. Okay, um, the name Hosea is the same, actually, it's another form of the name Joshua, and it means salvation. And, and his message was a message of salvation. 
He preached, as we said, to the northern kingdom. If you look in your Bible there in chapter 1 and verse 2, uh, when the Lord began to speak through Hosea, so this is right at the beginning of his ministry. We don't know how old he was. The Bible doesn't tell us that, but right at the beginning of his ministry, the first thing that God commanded me to do was to go and take for yourself an adulterous wife uh, and children of unfaithfulness. In other words, take a wife who's going to be unfaithful to you, who's going to give you children who are not your children. Okay? Go and marry, in one translation, a wife of harlotry. Now, we don't know whether she was already a prostitute, or whether she became one, we don't know. Um, but he knew that she would betray her covenant. Now, the word covenant is very important. If you get married, you enter a covenant. That's what you do when you walk to the front, you make these vows, and then you sign in blood, uh, you are now married. Okay, That's a covenant relationship. And God's in a covenant relationship with Israel. And they are in that. So if you look down in the text there, she has three children. The first is called Jezreel, a little boy, and his name means bloodshed which is kind of like calling your son Hiroshima or, uh, or, or uh, Holocaust. And then the second little girl is called Lorahama, which means not loved. You can imagine fun in the playground. What's your name? I'm Amy. What are you called? I'm called not loved. I mean, wow, dreadful. And then a little boy called not my people. He's probably the father of the first one, but not of the other two. The next two children come from her love. After giving birth, she deserted him. Next slide. Um, when you come to chapter 3, if you look at chapter 3 and verse 1, the Lord said to me, go show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. Raisin cakes were what you what you kind of ate as part of your sacrifice when you worshipped idols. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. Now, what would he need to buy her? Well, presumably, because she got to such dire straits, she'd had to sell herself into slavery. I, I mean, this is, this is slightly kind of using my imagination. She marries him. She's quite an attractive woman. Uh, she gives him a son, fine. Then the next child begins to suspect, suspect it's not my son or not my daughter. And then the third one, it's clearly not my son. And off she goes. And she lives as a prostitute. Uh, she kind of bounces around lots of blokes. And that has a great toll on her. She, she, she loses her looks. She sleeps in the gutter. The only way she can get bread, you know, prodigal son, where he goes and he basically becomes a slave to the guy there and eats the, would love to eat what the pigs eat. She becomes that. She's, she's in the gutter. And at this point, 15 shekels of silver is not very much. She's not worth much. She's on the block to be sold as a slave and he buys her back. And what would you do in that situation? What would most blokes do? Now, she is, she's cuckolded me. She's treated me terribly. And I've got her in my power now. now I, can, I can really, you know, she's my slave. I'm really going to get my own back. What does he do? So I bought her, verse 3, then I told her, you're to live with him for many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any men, and I will live with you. In other words, you're not allowed to go back to any other men, but I'm going to take you back as my wife. Because that's what the Lord told him to do. Take this woman back as your wife. 
Uh, next slide, please. So, so that's what we know about um, Hosea. If you look in your notes now, next slide, please. What I've done in your notes, I think, is give you a kind of a, a, a timeline or a date line of some of the events. Oh, golly, there we go. Wonderful. Oh, wow, there we go. Look, um, and, and in a little box, is that on page two or something like that? I don't remember. Or page one. So there's a box with some dates in it. And I'm going to go through those dates. But basically, you remember how the people of Israel, um, they, they come out of Egypt, they enter into a Sinai covenant with God. In other words, what happens at Sinai is that God is their husband and they are his people. Just as when you get married, you make certain vows, will be faithful to one another. That's what happens. They conquer the land. You get the period of the judges. Then for a very short period of time, you've got a united kingdom. Saul and David and Solomon. When Solomon dies, the kingdom splits in two. The disruption, the division of the kingdom, two kingdoms. By the time we come to Hosea, which is about 200 years after this, the king on the throne is a man called Jeroboam II. And so Hosea's ministry, if you look, is, is roughly those kind of 30 years. It overlaps the, the life of Jeroboam II. And in 722, just after Hosea is finished, a catastrophe happens for Israel. The Assyrians come down and they take Israel into captivity. They destroy the city they, of Samaria, which is the capital city. They destroy all the towns, all the villages, and they march the people off to exile in the land of Assyria. And they never come back. They're never seen again. The 10 tribes disappear. Of course, do you know what Mormons believe? Mormons believe the 10 tribes got in a boat and sailed to America. And that's where Americans come from. So um, that's not true. <laughs> okay. Um, you then have a single kingdom, Judah. Eventually they fall as well to Babylon, but they do return from exile. Okay. One of the things to remember is that some of the people of Israel actually ended up in Judah so when the people of Judah went into exile and returned, some of the people from Israel came back with them. Um, if you look at the map you've got there, there are the two kingdoms, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Israel is known as the, the northern kingdom. It's made up of the ten tribes. The capital city is Samaria, and there are several dynasties. In other words, they have a king in control, and, and, and he may, his son may be king after him, and then they kill him, and they, somebody else comes in control. So it's, it's a bloodbath. And of those kings, there's not a single good king amongst all of them. And by good king, what I mean is a king who loves and follows the Lord. All of these people either follow idols, Baal, or they build idols to, to represent God, which God said, no way, that's out. And so the northern kingdom goes into exile in, in, in Syria in 722. Some of them find refuge in Judah, but as a nation, they're never reborn. Do you know who took their place, incidentally? Who came into the vacuum when they disappeared? It's a name you'll have heard of. Begins with an S and ends with an Aritans. The Samaritans. So at the time of Jesus, the Samaritans were the people who came in and, and a kind of filled the gap when the Israelites went. Judah, the southern kingdom, is made of two tribes. The capital is Jerusalem, and it's always a Davidic king. God promised that there'd be a king of David on the throne forever and ever and ever, and that line runs in Judah all the way through. Okay, um, Jeroboam II is king. That's Hosea's ministry. These are the last days of the northern kingdom. 
It, it was national prosperity, economic boom. They'd never had it so good. There are no enemies on the horizon. Things are going incredibly well. They're completely secure, and they begin to th forget God. Um, do you remember Amos says, you know, the problem with you people, you've got, you've got luxury. You've got beds made out of ivory. Now, I've never seen the attraction of a bed made out of ivory, you know. But nonetheless, you are, you're kind of, you're rolling in it. And the people think, we've and Hosea and Amos come along and say, do you know what? You're going to be destroyed in a few years. And they say, no, why? These, these guys must be idiots. But that's exactly what happens. God sends the Assyrians, and the prophet Isaiah, who comes a little bit later than Hosea, says Assyria is like God's sword. It's the sword in the hand of God, and he sweeps through them, and he brings judgment. Okay, how does he do it? Well, the, 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 the question here is, how does he get his message across? And, and, and if you think about it, what are the two, I guess, the two fundamental relationships that, that human beings can be in, as far as other human beings are concerned? Well, you could say there are two of them. One is husband and wife. You enter into a covenant and you're to be faithful. And the other is parent and child. The father and the son, for example. And the father um, cares for his son and the son offers allegiance and loyalty to his son. And the way in which Hosea gets his message across is to use both of those pictures. So the first picture is the husband and the wayward bride. You remember the story we just told. Now here's this man who loves his wife and his wife breaks his heart. And that's a picture, says God, of, of me and Israel. Now at Sinai, we made a covenant, we entered into a loving relationship, and what's happened? She's been unfaithful to me. And the picture is also of Christ and his church. Is the church faithful? Does the church love Jesus? Whenever I read Hosea, the, the, the passage in the Bible that always springs to mind is Revelation chapter 2, where Jesus speaks to the church at, at um, Ephesus. And he says, there are so many good things about you, so many, but you've lost your first love. You do not love me as much as you used to. And then you got down the road, the church at Laodicea, which is committing spiritual adultery. And other churches are doing the same. They're going after the things of this world rather than God. And so the message actually is for Christians. Do you love the Lord as you did? Are you faithful to your covenant? One, one commentator says this, we are Gomer in the story. Within all our hearts, there's a tendency to slip away from God. Christ's bride was an unattractive rebel. When Jesus came to save the church, when he came to save you and me, he didn't save us. He didn't look at us and say, well, they're attractive. They're wonderful. I'm going to save them because they're the most wonderful person who's ever lived. He saw us in all our sin. And he loved us. And it was while we were yet sinners that Christ died for us. Love to the loveless shown. You think how much Hosea must have suffered. What Hosea must have gone through to get his bride back. That's nothing compared with what Jesus went through to save us, to rescue us as his church. Nothing in comparison. Hosea could have walked away. Actually, according to the law in the Old Testament, he could have said, I divorce you because you've broken the covenant, you committed a dot. He could have walked away. God could walk away from us, but he never will. That doesn't mean that we, should, we shouldn't be worried about sin. If, if I'm safe forever, it doesn't matter what I do. Well, hang on a minute. If sin is like that, it's personal. If it's against a God who loves you, then we should hate sin. We should hate sin. 
That's the first picture. The second picture that he uses is of a compassionate father and the prodigal son. When we get to chapter 11, or when you read chapter 11, it's like the prodigal son. There's a father who loves his, his son, and, and there's a sense in which we're like the son in the story. Sin is serious because it's ingratitude to a gracious, loving father. Every time we sin, you know, remember we said one of the sins of the people, they've forgotten the Lord. Every time we sin, what are we doing? We're forgetting what God has done for us. And God chastens us. You know, what God says to, to, to Hosea, or sorry, what Hosea says to his wife is, I have your back, but you've got to make sure you don't do this again. And you've got to spend a time of purification because she's sinned. And, and when we sin, it's a serious business. Because it's not just against the law of God, it's against the love of God. And we should feel that. Okay, I'm going to move on quickly to what, what is it? And um, what you've got there, I think, is a kind of a breakdown of what the, what the, the, the book looks like. Um, anybody tell me what page is that on? Page two. Are we only on page two, are we? Oh, page three. Oh, well, we're, we're steaming there, aren't we? Okay. So... Um, I always feel when you want to read a book of the Bible, you want to kind of get to know the structure. So let me go through the structure briefly. It seems to me the first three chapters stand together, and that's the story of Hosea, Hosea and his wife. And then the, the next um, 11 chapters also fit together. That's Yahweh, the Lord, and his wife, Israel. So, so if you look at the first section, okay, if you just look at that briefly, um, chapter, the, the verse one is a kind of an introduction, and then chapter one, verse two, all the way through to chapter two and verse one, is in the third person. In other words, it's, it's not Hosea speaking, it's Hosea describing what happened to him. The word of the Lord came to him, and he marries, and his children are born, and there's judgment on the, on the children, but notice at the end, there's also hope. Look at verse... Um, 10 of chapter 1. Let the, yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted in the place where it was said, you are not my people, they will be sons of the living God. In other words, what you've got there in that chapter is both judgment and hope in the life of Hosea. And you get the same at the end. This time, it's first person narrative. He's telling us personally from his own heart what happened. And again, there's hope. He brings her back, and then just look at verse 4. For the Israelites will live for many days without a king or a prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without ephod or idol. Afterwards, they will return and seek the Lord. So, so what you've got in that section, the beginning and the end, is the story of Hosea, which forms the framework of everything else that comes. And in between, you've got, if you could call it this, a typical sermon of Hosea. And it's a sermon in two parts. And the first part is judgment, and the second part is mercy. So just glance through from chapter 2 and verse 2 down to verse 13. You see that? Chapter 2 and verse 2, rebuke your mother, rebuke her, for she's not my wife and not her, I'm not her husband. That's God speaking. It's Hosea speaking about Goma, it's God speaking about his people. You've become so unfaithful. You've committed adultery. You're no longer my wife. Verse, uh, verse four, I will not show my love to her children. I won't take her children anymore. Verse six, I will block her path with thorn bushes. Or verse eight, she has not acknowledged that I am the one who gave her grain and new wine and oil. She keeps forgetting me. 
here's the application to us tonight. How often do we forget the Lord? What's the Lord doing in our lives? How often do we forget? You know, and, and maybe we, we don't turn to idols like they did, but we moan and we complain. You know, I have all these blessings from God. One thing goes wrong. Well, I don't know whether I can trust the Lord. The Lord's let me down again. And so, and so there's, a, there's a clear indication of what they've done wrong. But then if you look at verse 14, you've got this most amazing, I, I think verse 14, he's just mind-blowing. I am going to allure her. I will lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her. I will give her back a vineyard and so on and so on and so on. You know, guys, do you, do you know what it is when you allure a woman, don't you? You know what that means? Alluring a woman is, oh, you're so beautiful and I love you and I care for you and I, you know, let me lay my life down before you. That's, that's you know, you, you look blank at that. You're not very good romantic blokes, are you? Come on. That's what God does with Israel. He loves her so much that he wants her back and so he allures her back. Verse 18, in that day I will make a covenant for them whenever you get that little phrase and it's three times in this section in that day in that day in that day you know it's not just talking about what happened in history it's looking to the future in that day is a is a is that a clue in the prophets to say we're now talking about the future when Jesus returns or when Jesus is here what Jesus is going to do okay um, look at verse 23 I will plant for myself plant her for myself in the land I will show love to her the end of verse uh, 23 those who are not my people I will be your God okay so so that's the first section and then if you look at the second section okay what you've got is two cycles of sermons and it gets a little complicated here we're not going to go through these in any detail but but you get a cycle which is judgment and mercy and then judgment and mercy just like that sermon in chapter two you've got judgment and mercy the first long cycle is 4 1 to 11 um uh, 4 11 11 rather and that's in two parts there's the judgment so it starts off with a charge it's like she's on on in court look at verse one of chapter four hear the word of the lord you israelites because the lord has a charge to bring against you those of you who live in land there's no faithfulness no love no acknowledgement of god it's like she's in court and he's prosecuting her this is what you've done wrong and the rest of those chapters there's a few there's quite a few of them this is kind of the heart of what she's done wrong and there are a series of sermons and and sometimes one sermon doesn't naturally follow the next one we don't know how long you know it's like it's like you know you, you you collect a series of sermons on the same subject and you put them all together and there's no kind of logical development it's not like romans where you've got an argument running through there's, there's just a, a sermon then another sermon another sermon but the overlying theme is look god has done so much for you and you've forgotten him god has blessed you and you've turned your back on him how can you be so stupid and one of the one of the central things there is that they just won't repent look at verse of chapter six come let us to return to the lord and you think oh it's changing now they they changed their mind but the trouble is it's not real look at chapter four sorry chapter six and verse four what can i do with you ephraim ephraim's another name for israel what can i do with you judah your love is like the morning mist you ever been out for a walk in the morning and there's a thick mist and you come back and you have your cornflakes and you go out again and the sun has risen and the mist has just gone. He says, your love's like that. You say you love me, you pretend you love me, and then poof, it's gone. 
It's not real. But at the end, there's a ray of hope. Chapter 11 is maybe the most famous chapter in the whole book. I love chapter 11. This is where you got the picture of a father and a son. When Israel was a child, I loved him out of Egypt. I called my son. You know, I, when you were in Egypt, you were slaves in Egypt. You cried out to God. God came and he rescued you and he saved you. But the more I called Israel, this is chapter 11, verse 2, the further they went from me. They sacrificed to the Baals. They burned incense to the images. But I turned, taught them to walk. You know, I can remember the very first time I came. I was a teacher at the time. And I, I came back from school and I was driving along the road. And my wife was walking along the road with our little two-year-old or whatever. And it was the first time he'd ever walked outside the house. And she was coming to meet me. And I can remember driving along and seeing her walking with this, you know, she was teaching him to walk. It was just one of those, wow, never forget moments. God uses that tender picture for him and Israel. When she was, when Israel was a little boy, he, he cared for her and she fell over, he fell over and, you know, he, he rubbed her knee and he kissed away the tears. And the more he did that, the more she turned her back on him. She refused to follow him. So look at verse five. Will they not return to Egypt? In other words, they came out of Egypt. I'm going to send them back, not literally to Egypt, but to Assyria this time. And will not Assyrian rule over them? And you kind of think that's the end now. And then you come to verse eight. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Admar or like Zeboim? Zeboim and Admar were cities that had just gone and disappeared. My heart, this is God speaking, my heart is changed within me. All my compassions are aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger. And so on. You see the tenderness of God's heart there? I love you so much. I remember all I want for you is to be close to me. So that's the first cycle. And then a briefer cycle, again, you've got sin and judgment. If you look at chapters 12 and 13, what he does there is to go back over their history, and he speaks about three of the, the, the characters in their history. He speaks about Jacob. So in chapter 12 and verse 4, you struggled with an angel. He speaks about Moses. Um, verse 13, the Lord used a prophet to bring Israel out of Egypt a prophet who cared for them, and he talks about Moses there. And then he talks about Saul. You know, in their history, God gave them these men, and they rebelled. They've got a whole long history of rebellion. Okay, and then you come to chapter 14, and, and it ends with a note of great sort of promise and hope. Return, O Israel, to the Lord. Verse 4 of chapter 14, I will heal their waywardness and love them freely, for my anger has turned away from them. I will be like the Jew to Israel. And then having said that, look at the very last verse. At the very last verse, it's almost as if Hosea steps off the page and he says, now who is wise? Who will realize these things? Who is discerning? He will understand them. The ways of the Lord are right. The righteous walk in them, but the rebellious stumble in them. Like one of the Proverbs, isn't it? Now listen, you should have heard this. You know, there are two ways to live, and if you live this way, then it'll be disastrous, and if you live this way, then you'll know and experience and understand the amazing grace of God. So just, just briefly, just to take an overview of it, you've got the title and the call to wisdom at the end. You get these two sections, Hosea and his family, Yahweh and his family. In the first section, you've got those bits, and in the second section, you've got those bits. That's the book in a nutshell. Okay, 
Last question, where, uh, why, what's he doing? Well, he's trying to do three things, to warn them, to woo them, and to win them. And to understand, and this applies not just to Hosea, this applies to all the prophets, all the prophets, all the prophets are men who are sent by God to enforce the covenant. Remember we said earlier, covenant is a relationship. So if you're married, you are in a covenant. Okay? And this is what a covenant is. Biblical covenants represent a relationship between persons begun by the sovereign determination of the greater party in which the greater commits himself to the lesser in the context of mutual loyalty. That's pretty obvious, isn't it? Is that fairly straightforward? Got any lawyers here? <laughs> so what it's saying in posh terms is that God, who is the sovereign, who's in control, doesn't have to enter into a relationship with anybody. He can wash his hands and walk away, but he doesn't do that. He looks at Israel in bondage in, 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 uh, in Babylon. He remembers he made a covenant with Abraham uh, and, and, and Jacob and, and, and Isaac. And he says, look, I'm going to save them. So he saves them and he makes a commitment to them and they make promises back to him. He takes them as his wife and they promise we'll be faithful to you. So they establish a relationship. They entail an obligation. If you're in a covenant, you've got to do, do what, you, you, what the covenant demands, and they charge, charge a future for both parties. In other words, if you do this, this is what will happen. So let me give you a, an explanation. In the book of Leviticus, sorry, it speaks about what the covenant, this, this is about the covenant at Sinai. This is the relationship Israel was with God. There are blessings if you obey. If you follow my decrees and are careful to obey my commands, I will send you rain in its season, and the ground will yield its crops and the trees their fruit. You go into the land and you're obedient to me, I'll bless you. So, so did you pick up earlier on where God says, look, I gave them those things. And they said, it's Baal, it's Baal, you know, the, the false gods that's done. And God said, look, I did that for you. Because you obeyed me, I blessed you. But if you disobey me, there are curses. Now the word curse kind of throws us a bit. We kind of think Harry Potter and magic a curse is simply another word in the bible for judgment if this is what you do this is what will happen if you will not listen to me and carry out all these commandments and if you do reject my decrees and abhor my laws and fail to carry out all my commands and so violate my covenant in other words, if you break my covenant then i will do this to you i will bring on you sudden terror wasting diseases and fever that will destroy your sight and sap your strength you will plant seed in vain because your enemies will eat it in other words, I will judge you. I will judge you. I, I give you these blessings, I'll take them away. I will set my face against you so that you will be defeated by your enemies. Those who hate you will rule over you and you will flee even from the one who is pursuing you. And then the ultimate covenant judgment, I will scatter you among the nations and will draw out my sword and pursue you. Your land will be laid waste and your cities will be in ruins. When you think about it for a moment, you read those things, you think, well, God's been a bit harsh, isn't he? And, and you can read it like that. But, but what I want you to realize is this. The ultimate covenant judgment was exile. They went into the promised land in the time of Joshua. And even in the time of Joshua, when they entered the land, they sinned against God. Remember the story of Achan, who takes something he shouldn't have taken, and, and they forget God. Joshua dies, and you've got the time of the judges. You ever read the books of Judges? Over and over and over and over and over again, they go after other gods. They are disobedient to God. They kind of shake their fist in the face of God. 
We don't want God to be in charge of us. And then they have the kings. And the kings are pretty vile. You know, there, there are very few good kings. Most of the kings are terrible. And it's only ultimately in, in, when the Babylonian, Babylonians come, about 900 years after they've entered the land, that they go into exile. In other words, the Bible says God is slow to anger and abundant in mercy. He doesn't deal with us as our sins deserve. For these people who have constantly shaken their fist at God, God has had mercy and mercy and mercy. And if he sent judgment, it's always been to chasten them and bring them back. He didn't want to destroy them. He wants them to return. The last thing from that covenant is this. If they repent, then God will have mercy. But if you will confess their sins and the sins of their ancestors, then when they're uncircumcised, are humbled, and they pray for, uh, pay for their sin, I will remember my covenant with Jacob and my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abram, and I will remember the land. But for their sake, I will remember the covenant with their ancestors whom I brought out of Egypt in the sight of the nations to be their God. I am the Lord. Because if you repent, I'll bring you back. Now, the prophets, if I can use this phrase, the prophets were covenant policemen. You know what a policeman does? He enforces the law. The prophets come to God's people and say, look, this is what God said. You must obey God. And if you don't, this is going to happen. So they warn, he warns them, look, look, look what God has done for you. This is what God has said. And so if you don't, if you don't obey, exile will come. You will go into Assyria. You will go into exile. That's what's going to happen. This is unavoidable. So he's warning them. And, and you got that in, in Amos, didn't you? You get that through all the prophets. There's warning. But then secondly, he woos them. If only you'd repent, the Lord will have mercy on you. There is a way back to God from the dark part of sin. Hosea points to the amazing mercy of God. God doesn't want to cast you aside. God wants to take you back. God wants to bring you to himself. And how does Hosea know that? Because that's his experience. Hosea is a working example of the grace of God. There's this woman and she's lying on the floor. And what does she deserve? She deserves him to buy her back and then to, to go and make her work down a salt mine. What does he do? He takes her to himself and he takes her back and he woos her. And God says, that's what I'm like. And that's how Zia preaches. And then finally, he speaks to win them. In other words, he speaks about the unconditional love of God. You see, the promises to Abraham were not conditional. God said to Abraham, I'm going to bring this about no matter what. I will bless you. He said the same to David. And all of those are fulfilled ultimately in Jesus. What Israel couldn't do... Jesus did do. Here are some words. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Where do those words come? Twice in the Bible. We just read them in the book of Hosea, chapter 11. Where else do they come? The Christmas story. And, and you know, Jesus is taken away to Egypt to escape from Herod, and then Jesus comes back, and he says, out of Egypt, I called my son. He's quoting Hosea, and you kind of think, Oh, come on, Matthew, you're pushing it a bit there. It's exactly, exactly what happened. Where Israel was God's son and was an unfaithful son, Jesus was the perfect son. What does Matthew tell us next? Jesus, a few, few years later, is baptized, and the Father says, God the Father said, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. He's the perfect son. He's the son who does everything that, that Israel didn't do. 
and he dies on the cross for our sins. If you want to see what the love of God is like, how much God is willing to embrace us in all our rebellion and to enter into our world with all its pain and to experience the pain of a broken heart, look at Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the whole of the Hosea story. Okay, I'm going to pause there for a moment. We've, we've, we've got about a third of the way through. So um, there we go. And even if we'd started on the dot, we wouldn't have got it all. So, so there you go. Never mind. But I'm, I'm pause and ask if there are any questions. Did I have some water somewhere? Is it on there? Near? Oh, it's in. Oh, it's in there. Oh, thank you. Brilliant. Good. 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 Any questions? No, I'm not quite sure what to do at this point now. What What I think I'll do is I'll spend five minutes just explaining what the next section is, the teaching of Hosea, and then the last ten minutes we'll do how Hosea points forward to Jesus, which we've already got to do a little bit. So, so I'm going to run through this really. Oh, really swiftly. Okay. Okay. There we go. There we go. Can you read that? Okay. Hosea tells us a number of there we go. Hosea tells us a number of things about all right. Almost there. Keep going. There we go. Okay. Hosea tells us a lot about God. So the first thing he tells about God is God is really in control. He is the sovereign God. I've been the Lord ever since you came out of Egypt. I'm in control. So, for example, in that second chapter, if you just look at chapter two of, uh, of Hosea, this is what, page 901. Um, that, that I think it's 13 times in the first bit and 13 times in the second bit, it says, this is what I'm going to do. I will strip her naked. I will take her to the desert. I will show my love to my... Uh, um, I will wall her up. And then in the second part, I am going to allure her. I'm going to lead her into the desert. In other words, all the events in history, what, what you've got to remember is that history is going on. And, and uh, the Assyrians are going to come. And the Assyrians are going to take them away into, into, into exile. And God says, well, it might be the Assyrians, but it's me who's doing it. So at this present moment in time... How does that apply to us? Well, COVID didn't get into the world under God's radar. I don't know why COVID happened. I can't, you know, I don't know the mind of God, but I know for one thing, it didn't take God by surprise. It's not as if God is in heaven thinking, oh no, what's going to, what am I going to do next? This, this terrible, God is in control of everything. And God was in control of what happened to the nation of Israel. God is sovereign. That's the first thing to realize. Second thing to realize is that he's holy. He talks about him pouring out his wrath. Um, my colleague, Clover, who, 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 who is the sort of uh, more handsome version of your pastor, um, <laughs> he's certainly got the deepest voice I've ever heard. Have you ever heard Clover? It's the deepest voice I've ever heard. It's quite frightening really but but you know he was preaching last night about about the last chapters of, of amos which are about god's wrath and we kind of think oh come on you know is that one it well when we to understand god's wrath it's god's absolute passion for righteousness 
absolute passion for right. Would you want to live in a world where right and wrong didn't matter? Would you want to live in a world where God was indifferent to Holocaust or, or indifferent to, to, to the things that happened? No, no. God is passionate for justice, passionate for righteousness. And that's his holiness. He's the holy God. And, and, and one of the things I love about Hosea is that he, he, he's just brilliant at images. So God is like a jealous husband. And we kind of say, well, jealous, that's a bad word. But actually, jealous is a word which is used of God. Because what it's saying is this is an exclusive relationship. You know, this is my wife and this is my husband. And, and, and there's something between us that no one else should have. You know, I, I've been married now for, for 43 years. And I can say, hand on heart, I've never, ever flirted with another woman. Ever. Not ever. Why? Because I owe something to my wife, which is absolutely exclusive and if i if she was to see me or find me flirting with someone else then she would be right to be angry she would be right to be jealous because there's something unique in our relationship with god there is something absolutely unique something that belongs to god alone okay so he's like a frustrated shepherd where the sheep keep going away he's like a flood that's going to wash them away he's like a lion or a bear here's a verse in chapter 13 like a bear robbed of her cubs i will attack them and rip them open like a lion i will devour them a wild animal will tear them apart i mean that's god speaking of himself and it's meant to shock it's kind of you know something in your face to, to, to really kind of knock the stuffing out of you so you see the reality of it. It's meant to shock. And yet he's gracious. God is amazingly gracious. He's tender-hearted. Here's a word you need to learn. It's the word chesed, okay? And it means all of those things, love and steadfast love, persevering love, tender love, affection, mercy, undeserved kindness, covenant faithfulness, loyalty, of one partner to another. And that's the love of God. That's the word which is used of God's love towards his people. Think of a, of a love of the best husband for a wife or of the best parent for a child that you can possibly imagine. Multiply that by a billion and you've got a picture of God's love, just a, just a, 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 a pale reflection. Okay, what about sin? Well, the, the, the basic sin is idolatry. And God describes it quite simply as prostitution. In other words, you, you go after other, other gods. You know, I've done all these things for you, and instead of being faithful to me, you sleep around. Now, now in our society, which is pretty much, you know, sex is, is, is no big deal. You know, you know, if I'm thirsty, I have a Coke. If I'm brandy, I have sex with somebody. That's just the way it is. God says, no, no, absolute purity. And in our relationship, we've got absolute purity. That's the, 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 um, the, the expression of it. And you'll find the word constantly prostitution. My people have committed prostitution. But then at the heart of it is ingratitude. They, they've forgotten the Lord. Um, and it's seen in social sins, the way in which they treat one another. And at the base, it's lack of knowledge. Because you've rejected knowledge, I will also reject you as my priest. Because you've ignored the law of your God, I will also ignore your children. That's a very important message to pastors and Bible teachers, incidentally. The priests were the one who were due to preach or to teach God's word to the people. And they teach, but they don't teach the word. They don't teach the truth. They don't teach God as he really is. Judgment, well, we'll, we'll, we'll kind of skip over that. You sow the wind, you reap the whirlwind. The basic thing is exile. 
literally fulfilled. And then hope. Where is the hope in Hosea? Well, one of the big themes of Hosea is a call to repentance. So he describes repentance. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. So righteousness to yourselves, reap the fruit of unfailing love, break up your unplowed ground, for it is time to seek the Lord. When God saves, he doesn't save us without a change within us. He saves us by changing us. So we'd never believe in Christ unless he gave us faith in the first place. He changes our hearts and we long for God and we want God and we, 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 we desire him. And God says, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to change your hearts. Um, the three great passages, and we haven't got time to, to, to look at those. The three great passages are chapter one, two and three where it looks as if God has rejected his people. But then if you've gone in chapter one again, verse 10, yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured, and so on. And at the end of chapter three, uh, for the Israelites will live for many days without a king or prince, without sacrifices. Afterwards, chapter three and verse five, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord. Chapters one, two, and three. And then chapter 11 that we talked about earlier, the loving parent who woos them. And then, oops, the very last chapter, it ends with a series of promises. So if you look at chapter 14, look at chapter 14. I will heal their waywardness and love them freely for my anger has turned away from them. I will be like the Jew to Israel. It will blossom like a lily, like the cedars of Lebanon. He will send down his roots. So he uses all these agricultural pictures. They're going to be fertile um, and they're going to grow. And uh, verse 7 is important men will dwell again in your shade. In other words, it's not just Israel is going to be blessed, but other people are going to be blessed. In fact, the whole world is going to be blessed by God's blessing Israel. Other people are going to come under the shade of Israel. So God's people are going to expand, including what he says, other people, which of course is the promise of the Gentiles coming in. Okay, so very briefly then, when were all these promises fulfilled? Um, there's a sense in which there was a partial fulfillment. You know, Israel's going to be restored. They're going to go back into the land. There was a partial fulfillment when some of them joined the people of Judah. And when the people of Judah went into exile in, in, Babylon, in Babylon and then they came back, some of the people of Israel were restored. So there was a kind of a restoration. A second fulfillment was when the Samaritans were converted. Because remember, the, the land of Israel is where the Samaritans lived. And the gospel went to the Samaritans. But the ultimate fulfillment of all the promises of the Old Testament are in Jesus. That's why Paul says, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. So that through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Here's the important thing to think. Israel was a son of God. Yes. But she failed again and again and again. Jesus is the son of God who does everything that Israel couldn't do. So 10 points of comparison, and then we're finished. First of all, um, God's hesed love, the love of God, which is, which is passionate and glorious. Where is that fully expressed? Where is it at greatest? Where is it seen in its, in its nth degree? Well, it's seen in the story of Hosea. It's seen in Hosea's love for, for Gomer. But the ultimate is John 3.16. God so loved the world he gave. There is God's tender love. So where is Jesus? Look at the love of God in Hosea, and then it's multiplied, it's seen in Christ. Number two, the marriage metaphor. That's the metaphor which is used of Israel and, and God in the Old Testament. It's used of the church and, 
um, uh, and Christ in the New Testament. So what does that mean? Well, what is it that breaks God's heart for, for the people in the Old Testament? It's because they are unfaithful, because they don't love him as much as they should. Jesus speaks to the church at, at, at Ephesus, and he said, look, so many things good about you, but you don't love me like you used to. I can look back on times in my life when maybe I've been more passionate for Christ. When I've really loved, when I didn't, you know, when I went off to university, I didn't care what people thought of me. Remember in those, those old days when you used to have the, um, those fluorescent stickers, brown stickers, and you put them on books and they said, smile, Jesus loves you. Remember those things? Garish, vile things. When I went off to, 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 to university, I had a duffel coat. Everybody wore a duffel coat in those days. We talk about the, you know, the 1920s. And a, a duffel coat. And I covered myself with stickers. Because my pastor said to me, when you get to university, they've got to know you're a Christian. So I thought, they're going to know, all right. So, you know, <laughs> what a complete wallet. You know? But I didn't care because I love Jesus. You get sophisticated and, and you know, you're frightened what people say. Sophistication is one of the greatest enemies of the gospel. We're too clever by half. Number three, the father's love. I mean, great picture of the love of a father. You know, there's the father. You know, how can I give you up? And it's the story of the prodigal son in the New Testament, isn't it? Hebrews, God is the father who chastens us. He'll never let us go. He'll never let us down. He'll never lead us down, okay? And he'll never let us off. What does that mean? Well, sin counts. Sin's important. So God chastens his children. Now, if God loves you, he'll chasten you. Doesn't mean that sin doesn't matter. In fact, in some ways, the sin of a Christian is worse than the sin of a non-Christian because it's against the light. But it doesn't mean he'll ever let us go. He'll never tear up our birth certificate, but he will chasten us. That's what he was going to do with Israel. Number four, God has two sons. We talked about that earlier. You, you may come across this word type. A type is a kind of a picture in the Old Testament. It's a person or a place or a thing that points to Jesus. Well, Israel is a type of Christ. Israel was an unfaithful son. Christ is the true Israel. This is my beloved son. Everything in Israel failed him. Jesus was successful. Resurrection. If you look at chapter 13 and verse 14, what's going to happen to the nation? Look at chapter 13 and verse 14. I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. Where, O death, are your plagues? Where, O grave, is your destruction? Now, where's that from in the New Testament? Anybody remember? 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In other words, the nation is going to die and he's going to come back to, to, to life again. If you turn across, how long is it going to take? Turn across to chapter 6 and verse 2. 6 and verse 2. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us. Ever heard of that before? <laughs> you know, what, what's it saying? Israel is going to die and they're going to be reborn after three days, a particular period of time. Christ, ultimately it's fulfilled in Christ. Death, where is your sting? Grave, where is your victory? That was fulfilled, not in Israel, ultimately, but in Christ. So it's pointing forward to Jesus. Somebody said very wisely at the beginning, you keep on finding verses in the New Testament. You think, where's that from? It's from Hosea. Okay, uh, almost there. It doesn't say much about oops, it doesn't say much about the Messianic King. You know, some of the prophets say a lot about Jesus. So Micah tells us he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Isaiah, with all the Christmas 
passages, you know, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and all, you know, Zechariah tells us a lot about what's going to happen, he's going to be pierced. Hosea doesn't tell us a lot about Jesus, but he does tell us enough. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will come together, remember they're two nations, they'll be united, and they will appoint one leader, and will come up out of the land. Well, great will be the day of Jezreel. Jezreel, which was going to be a place of judgment, is going to be reversed to be a place of blessing. And then right at the end, afterwards, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come trembling to the Lord and his blessings in the last days. Remember when we said last days, it's always about Jesus. Who is this king of David where all the people gather together? Well, it's Jesus. It's fulfilled in Jesus. At the call to repentance. Repentance is not just saying sorry, it's putting things right. That was the message of John the Baptist, bring forth fruit worthy of repentance. Jesus looks at our hearts, God looks at our hearts. The message of Christ is it's not enough just to be like the Pharisees, all religious on the outside, you need a change in your heart. Real repentance is that. The new covenant. What's the heart of, do you remember the, the new covenant? In, in Ezekiel and Jeremiah, I will take out their heart of stone. And in its place, I put a heart of flesh. Are you familiar with that? The problem is the people's hearts are, are hard and they're against God and they keep sinning. And it's like, you know, imagine that you had a corpse at the front and you took a knife and you chopped open the, 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 the chest and you got your hands in there and you pulled the ribs apart. And then you look, that would have been a good evening, wouldn't it? And then you look inside and what is there in the chest? There's a big rock. Well, no wonder they're dead. Imagine it was possible to take out a heart and you put the heart in place and you join it up and it begins to beat and you close it up and the person takes a breath. They're alive. I will take out the heart of stone and put in its place a heart of flesh. That's the new covenant. And, and, and he doesn't mention that, but that's what he means. I will heal their waywardness and love them freely for my anger will be turned away. It's not just that he'll forgive them. He'll change their hearts. They won't be wayward anymore. Um, one, of the, one of the verses that we, we, we may have quoted, you know, um, uh, they're not my people, they will be my people. I'm not your God, you'll be my God. The New Testament takes that to apply to us. Most of us here tonight, I imagine, are Gentiles. I don't know whether we've got any, here, anybody here from a Jewish background. In the Old Testament, it's, it's, it's God going the gospel to the Jews, but in the New Testament, it's the Gentiles. We're included. And Paul says, um, as he says in Hosea, I will call them my people. Paul's talking about the conversion of the Gentiles who are not my people. And I will call them my loved ones who are not my loved ones. In other words, this is what God is doing now, calling people to himself from the whole world. And Paul applies it to Gentiles. So does Peter. But you are a chosen people. This is the church, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people. But now you're the people of God. One should not receive mercy, but now you receive mercy. The church is the recipient of those promises. When were those promises fulfilled? Did God keep his word? Yes. How do we know? We'll look round. This is what God is doing. This is what God's doing in this area. This is what God's doing in his church. And last of all, God will bless all nations. Let the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted in the place where it was said, you're not my people, they will be called the children of the living God. You remember the promise to Abraham? Where, where, when was that fulfilled? Well, it was never fulfilled historically in the people of Israel. 
but it's fulfilled today in the church. People will dwell again in his shade. They will flourish like the grain. Right at the end, remember that verse we read? In the end, people, Gentiles, will come and be converted. It's fulfilled in Christ, the seed of Abraham. And when John sees heaven, what does he see? So many people, no one can number them.